Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 15. We're going to look at the 15th Psalm this morning. And I would like for you to um, be looking in your Bibles, so if you don't have one with you, you may want to take one of the few Bibles before you, and uh, it's on page 533. Psalm 15. This psalm starts out with the question, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? And who may live on your holy hill? If you go over to Psalm 24 and verse 3, the question is this, who may ascend the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? If you move over to the New Testament, you find some of these same questions almost in statement forms. For instance, over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, the question is really a statement there. It says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the power of the Spirit of God. The question In fact, in the first service, I repeated it in many different ways from even other passages, but the question keeps coming up in the Bible over and over again. The question has to do with how do we walk in fellowship with the Lord? What is pleasing in our Lord? What is developing in our lives when we're pleasing our Lord? How are we going to walk with Him? And the question keeps getting answered in the Bible in a variety of ways. That's why, for instance, we have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments help us to understand what God desires for us and for our lives. That's why we have Jesus saying in the New Testament, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus was basically saying, This is what I want you to get. This is how I want you to live. This is the summary of it all. Here's the first and second commandment, or basically, here's the commandment summed up. It's all in, you are to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, and your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we read these kind of questions in the Bible, we stop and think about it because they are very, very important. And it's interesting to note as we do that, that the answers generally are not very long, and they keep going back to the same basics over and over again. They tell us what God expects of those who desire to walk with him in his blessed presence. They tell us what God's character is like and what God is trying to develop in our character so that we're the person that God approves us. They're telling us and directing us as to how we should be living so we can enjoy a full fellowship with God as we go through our lives day by day. Now, first of all, I've got to start out by saying these requirements have nothing to do with how a man or a woman become right with God. You and I can never win God's approval through our works. We simply come to a point in our life where we realize we need to trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross. And when we recognize that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior, he is everything he said he was, and that you and I cannot stand in his presence because we have sin in our lives and we need to be forgiven, when we recognize that and we ask him to forgive us, at that point we become right with God. 
And when we become right with God, God's spirit comes into our life, God's power comes into our life, which is going to enable us to live a new life, and which is going to enable us to follow the kind of life God desires for each one of us. And as we get over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it says that life is going to look more and more like the life of Jesus Christ. Now, we get a hint in this chapter what that life really looks like. The psalmist starts out by saying, who's going to walk with the Lord, in a sense, when he says, who may dwell in his sanctuary and who may live on his holy hill? And then he gives us six approved characteristics that God is going to be trying to develop in your life and in mine. And when you get to verse 2, he starts out by saying it's going to affect a person's character. And the scripture says here, he whose walk is blameless and does what is righteous is going to be one of those persons who is able to dwell in a sanctuary, live on the holy hill, and walk pleasingly and in deep fellowship with his father day by day. Now, when you read these words, at first it sounds very negative. It may be even impossible as you look at it, but the Hebrew word blameless is not negative at all. That Hebrew word means to be whole. That word means to be sound. That word means to be solid. That means to be the kind of person that you and I would love to be with. This refers to the person whose character, we might say, is morally well-rounded and grounded and is not just strong in one area, but is true all the way through the person's life as he lives it out. In other words, this person, when God gives Ten Commandments and says, here are some simple steps I'm giving you, ten of them, and they will make your life work, they will be good for you, you won't have regrets if you follow these steps, these are things that are going to keep you from sin, and these are things that are going to help you sleep at night. This person doesn't say, oh, I like number three, and I like number five. I'm going to follow those. No, this person says, those all ten came from God, and if they're important to God, they're important to me, and I'm going to do my best to follow all of them. This is the person who's well-rounded. He does not vacillate in his commitment. He's the same on Monday as he is on Friday as he is on Sunday, and they're real, and they're moral, and they're wonderful, and they're the kind of people that just know that God loves them deeply, and they want to serve him, and they want to please him. Now, the key verb here in this first section is that little word, does. He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous? You see, these people don't just walk around acting righteous. These people actually do righteous things. These people love the Lord in such a way that when they get up in the morning, they have faith and trust in Him, and they know that faith without works is dead, as Jesus' brother James has told us. So they get up in the morning and they begin to read a portion of scripture and they ask God to speak to them and they ask God to direct them because they want to live out what they read in the morning. And maybe they come across a passage like Matthew 25, beginning with verse 34, where it says, we are to feed the hungry, we are to give drinks to the thirsty, 
We are to welcome the stranger, we're to clothe the naked, we're to care for the sick and visit the prisoner. And because Jesus said that, they understand that it's not an option. So they're going to begin as they go through their day to look for someone that might be in that kind of a position. And without hesitation, they're going to start looking for someone or asking God to direct them to someone who they could help make life just a little bit more bearable. They're open to being a kind of person who's going to reach out in that direction. When you get to the end of verse 2, it says, Who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander in his tongue. This is the kind of characteristic that deals with the person's speech. When the first line tells us that speak the truth from their heart, it's telling us what they do. The second line, when it says no slander comes from their tongue, it's telling us what they don't do. There was a construction worker by the name of Al Davidson. He opened his paycheck one day, and there was $100 more on his check than what he was supposed to get. He didn't say a word. And during the following week, the accountant of the company he was working for realized the mistake, and without making a big fuss about it, he thought, well, I'll just deduct it out of his salary next week. And that's exactly what he did. When the next week came along, Al opened his envelope and there's his check and there's $100 less and he goes to the accountant and he points out that there's $100 less. And the accountant said, well, you had $100 more than you should have had last week and you didn't come to me and talk to me about that. And Al Davison, who's a quick thinker, said, I know you've got to always forgive somebody for one mistake, but when it gets to be two mistakes or more, you've got to deal with the issue. And you can imagine what the accountant thought when he heard this quick story. It's interesting today to hear stories that deal with honesty. Because quite frankly, we are living in a culture that's having a real problem with honesty and telling the truth. And it seems like most of the stories we have and what we hear today kind of give us a distorted version of what honesty is, maybe the kind of distorted version that Davidson had. On a recent talk show, the audience was asked this question, what would you do if there was an extra $1,000 in your bank account and there was no way to trace it? Would you tell the bank? And they talked about this for almost two hours. And someone was recording all of the results because all kinds of answers came in. But as they went over all of the results, most of them fell under two camps. There were those who said, no, I wouldn't tell the bank because it was someone else's mistake. And then there were those who said, yes, I would keep the money because I'm not hurting anyone I know or anyone I care about. You see, many people feel today that there are all sorts of good reasons to run from the truth or to settle settle for half-truths or to ignore the subject of truth altogether. In his research on the everyday ethics of American people, Joshua Halberstram discovered that approximately 9 out of 10 Americans admitted to lying more or less on a regular basis in order to give themselves an advantage, 
to escape the consequences of some action or to protect someone else from the truth. That reality probably explains why a former president of our United States could fudge on the truth when he was going through what we now call the Lewinsky investigation and the majority of the American people couldn't care less. But we are in big trouble. We're in trouble as individuals. We're in trouble as families. We're in trouble as a nation if we're getting more and more careless with the truth and nobody knows anymore what they can really believe. What the scripture is saying is God's person is going to be truthful. God's person is not only going to be truthful, but if he's got children, he's going to see that those children carry honesty out the door when they go from the home. And that'll be one of the six or seven virtues that those kids will hang on to and will follow as they begin to fly solo. And then let me add quickly, because it's here, it says, and this person does not slander others as well. This person does not gossip. This person is always sure of the things he says. This person doesn't say to cover himself, well, I heard, and then share some news he's not sure of. This person is very careful what he shares. This person uses discretion and realizes that many things come into his mind and into his heart and into his life that never should be shared. And this person is very careful before they criticize another fam family member in God's church, in God's family. And this, this man or woman is very careful not to exaggerate their own ability or accomplishments. Well, let's move to verse 3. It deals with a person's conduct. The world seems to be concerned about this, but these in, in, the, in the world doesn't understand even why it is concerned or what it is concerned about. They're kind of in a fog when it comes to it. But the psalmist here is dealing with issues that are as old as his day, but are very fitting for ours as well. He says in verse 3, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. And it's a similar idea to what we found in verse 2, but the idea is moving here now from mere words to action. When it says, who does his neighbor no wrong, that's having to do with how we treat another person. Now the question is, do we treat others with respect? Especially those who might have a less important position in life than we do especially those that might have less education than we do, especially those that are unchurched and we have very little involvement with, especially with those that we see so seldom or maybe we only encounter one time in our life. How do we encounter those people? Do we ever snub those people? Do we ever talk down to those people? Do, are we ever mean to those people? Or like Jesus Christ, do we share with those people in love and do we see their potential and do we see what they can become? When I was serving as an executive minister in a district, I came into my office one day and I'd been on the road for a couple of days, came in, I had a half hour in the office and then I had to, to get on the road again to go be with a church that was 
forming a search committee. And as I came into the office, the administrative assistant there said to me, you've got two phone calls, you need to return fairly soon. One was from one of our larger churches and a church that supported our district in tremendous ways. And the other one was from a very small church, but a church that had a very faithful pastor and a loving pastor and was gradually helping that church to grow and go forward in Christ. And I got busy with all the things I had to take care of, and my schedule was crowded, and I wasn't sure how I was going to fit in either call. But I have to confess that my first thought was, just as I got to the end of the half hour, I better call that large church pastor and see what's on his mind, and I'll get to the other pastor somehow when I'm on the road, and I can fit it in. Now, to be terribly honest with you, I have to say, these verses are telling us that God is displeased with how I looked at that. And it's a barrier to my fellowship with him when I'm in tune with what I think are those who are more important rather than in tune also on an equal basis with those who are less important. As we continue in verse 4, it talks about a person's value. And it says, Who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord. Now, this idea is building on the former two or three ideas, but here it doesn't have to do with how we treat them. It's how do we regard those people around us, and it has to do with values. So let me ask you this. Who are your models? Who do you look up to? Whose actions and whose character do you find offensive? And how do you deal with it? This is kind of a tough day for our young people. They're facing a lot that some of us who've been adults for many years have never had to face. And a few years ago, a government commission in Canada studied the characteristics of young people because as a government, they wanted to help their young people and they sensed there was a problem and they needed as much help as possible. And one of the things they discovered, to their amazement, was that the young people of that day, which was just a few years ago, had no models, no heroes. Now, it's, un it's difficult to understand, if you're an adult, how they could not have any models or any heroes, because we had heroes growing up, and some of you even have some heroes now in your life. But they discovered a few years ago that most of our young people to, in that day actually did not have any heroes, and because of that, they were just drifting along with no purpose and no motivation. Now, there is one thing worse than having no models, and now we're in that trend. The trend today is that our young people are moving toward having the wrong models. They aren't good for them, and they're mixing up their lives, and they're not knowing where they're going, and they're, they're faced with trying to put life together, and they don't understand it. And when they look out at the models, there are no good models for the most part, they think. So they're following a rock singer who has an abominable lifestyle, but is nevertheless rich and famous. And if they're in some of the major cities, they're, they're following that 
drug dealer who has the best clothes and the best jewelry and drives the nicest car, and they think that's the way they ought to go, or they follow a sports figure whose life is filled with compromise, but they also see the millions he's getting for playing a game. And as they get attracted to those models, they forget about all the models that are all around them that are probably most important to them, and they're not even seeing those models. The people who work for an honest living and are faithful and are on time and are there every day and are making just an average salary. The father who takes time to really be with his family and makes some decisions in order to make that happen and he's faithful to his family and provides for his family, they don't see him as a model. Or the mother who's faithful in raising her children or the people who are all around us who are sacrificing in one way or another for other people or for ministries or a whole variety of programs in our, in our culture. These are not admired very much, if at all, and they should be. And I don't want to look down on the young adults because of where they are, because I find that that's also true with many older people in our time. One social critic recently said, we have reached the point in our day where people would rather be envied than admired. That's not true of the righteous. What the psalmist is saying here is the righteous follow those who have character. The righteous hang out with those who want God's will in their life. The righteous see those that, that love the Lord and make the right decisions and who are honest and who are people who are trying to minister to others and they not only take and take out of life, but sometimes they give to life too and give so that their society around them can make a difference. And the, God's people take those people and honor them and work with them and walk with them and look up to them because they want to be with people who fear the Lord and follow him. Let's go on to the latter part of verse 4. It deals with a person's integrity. And it says, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. In the Hebrew, that verse is stretched out a little bit, and it says, who keeps his oath at all times and is faithful even when it hurts. In the words, even when it hurts, is probably really the important part of that phrase. No one has trouble keeping their word, standing by what they say, when it's to their advantage. In fact, you'd have to be a little unbalanced not to do that. But how about when the conditions change? And because of that, the promise or the agreement or the contractor or the contract is no longer to your advantage. A pastor shared with me not too long ago that his church was in a building program and they were going through a three-year faith commitment program and they were raising funds for the building. And there was one man in the church who gave a tremendous amount of money, decided he would pay that over three years and would sacrifice to make it happen. Now he had some means, so the number wasn't totally out of line, but he figured out what he could do 
And then he figured out what he could do if he would sacrifice some. And he made that sacrifice and raised the figure. And then the day came when everybody brought in their commitments. And he found out that everyone was giving a lot less than they probably could. And that there was no sacrifice on the part of the rest of the congregation. Now, do you honor your promise when that happens? Do you fulfill a contract when things change and it doesn't turn out to your advantage? Or do you try to find some way to get out of what you've committed yourself to? The psalmist says, God approves of the people who keep their oaths, even when it hurts them to do it. The people who have a deep sense of integrity and will even make material sacrifices in order to be honest and in order to be faithful. The people whose honor is much more important than their wallets are God's kind of people. He said, who keeps their oath and is faithful even when it hurts. The last thought is in, chapter, is in verse 5, the first part of it. It says, who lends his money without usury and does not accept a bribe against the innocent. The final characteristic here of a person God approves of uh, will not put personal gain before the well-being of another. Now, if you go back to Old Testament days, the Jews living out their faith, very seldom charged anyone interest. And even when they went into business deals, if they charged any interest at all, they kept that interest down very, very low for each other. Their concern was to look out for each other. And when they were looking out for each other, they seldom charged each other interest. And if interest was involved at all, they kept the rates very, very low. And that's just how they lived it out until a period of time came when all of this was abused, we read about it in Nehemiah 5. And the leaders were charging the people higher taxes than ever before. And those who were poor and those who were aliens, those who were not able to pay, then worked out payments, but they also tacked on very high interest. We read about it in Nehemiah 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, we had to borrow money. They went to Nehemiah to talk about this. And our king and our leaders have taxed our fields and taxed our vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and even though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery and we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And when we pay our debts, they charge us high interest. And the problem was they were taxing the people heavily. And they were making it impossible for them. And there were many in this process who were gaining on the poor and taking advantage of the poor instead of helping their neighbors out and reaching out to their neighbors in love. And God's saying here, they're putting money before people. But God's people will always be careful to reach out to those who have need 
and be fair in all of their business dealings for Jesus' sake and will never get involved in taking bribes or doing what is just going to completely defeat the people who are trying honestly to get on their feet and do the right thing. Now, if you are God's child, and if you are faithful, and if you are walking in obedience, and if you are reading a passage like this and saying, that's something I've got to do, that's something I've got to get into. Notice how the psalm ends. It says, he who does these things will never be shaken. And that's the answer to the question. Who is going to dwell in God's sanctuary and who's going to dwell on his holy hill? It's those people who live out their lives according to this passage, whose speech is what it ought to be, who are fair as they live out their lives, who are blameless and well-rounded and, and, and they're always looking as to what God wants for them and they're ready and willing to live out their lives in that way. It's people who care for those around them. And when, when people live that way, it says they'll not be shaken loose from God's love. Nothing is going to break their relationship with God. Nothing is going to break their confidence because they have the strength of God even when they go through their struggles. Because these people know if they're doing their best that God is always going to be there and be their refuge and be their strength and be their fortress. There's a great passage over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. It deals with the whole issue that you and I, as we live out our lives, run into many obstacles. We sometimes stand up for the truth, and because we stand up for the truth, things go wrong. We try to do the right thing, and it sometimes turns out to be everything but the right thing. And we sometimes will get discouraged and we'll get frustrated in that kind of situation. And if you're anything normal at all, you're probably going to say at one time or another, where is God and what is he doing? But the scripture promises this. It says we may get to a point sometimes where we're hard-pressed on every side, but we'll never be crushed. We may get to a point where sometimes life is very perplexing, but we're not going to end up in despair. We may get persecuted sometimes because we follow a narrow path or do the right thing, but we're never going to be abandoned. We might sometimes get struck down for a while, but we're never going to be destroyed. Why? Because we have the all-surpassing power that is from God and not from us when we live on our lives and attempt to please him in how we do that. Shall we pray? Our Father in God, I want to live like this. I don't always live like this, and I have to back up sometimes and repent, and I have to ask you for help sometimes because I don't think before I act at all times. But I would also know that in this congregation, most, if not everyone, would like to live like that too. And they have some of the same problems I do. We often think, but don't think well enough 
before we make decisions. And we sometimes go through life not caring or we wonder if it's worth it all, but God, this scripture says, when we follow you, when we let you change our character, when you let us gradually, patiently develop us into the person of Christ, that sometimes it's going to be tough, but you're going to be there for us. And you're never going to let us down. And you're never going to walk away from us. And you're never going to give up on us. And you're never going to get discouraged because you know how tough it is to live out the human experience. But we want that direction and we want that power and we want that strength that comes only from you. So God, enable us to live for you and to be your people and to respond even this week in a positive way to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> I would encourage you to read through Psalm 15 about the middle of the week and just kind of look at that passage and see what you're doing and how you're going through the week. And if you need to open up to the Lord and ask him for his help or ask him for his direction, do it. So that somewhere in the course of this week, you could be a positive influence on at least one other person. And if you get the chance, share Christ. But even if you don't get that chance, still be a positive person. Because maybe someone else down the road who knows the Lord will also do that. And that person will begin to see God's people are different. Go with joy. And may you be blessed because he'll never give up on you. In Jesus' name, amen.